This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Aloe Recovery. Located in sunny Southern California in Malibu and Silver Lake, Aloe was created by our friend Bob Forrest and his friends Evan Haynes and Jared and Bob. It was created as a place that addicts could go to be treated with compassion and not control. They're set up to to treat co-occurring mental health disorders, including severe mental illness, with a nice, kind touch. They uh, they make sure your detox is comfortable. So if you're kicking uh, benzos or heroin or alcohol, uh, it seems like a great place to go. Aside from that, the amenities who can who can complain about surfing and equine therapy and and sound bath meditation and sweat lodges. It's an amazing place. And if you're fucked and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California to get treatment, I totally, totally recommend going to Aloe. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our friends at CASL, which stands for Clean and Sober Love, the dating app for people who choose this way of life. It was created by one addict to help another addict to date safely. So here's the reality. You got clean, you got sober, you got a new life, and now where are you supposed to date? Grinder? Eh? C-A-S-L is the solution. Dating in recovery is real and worth considering if your own shit is together. C-A-S-L is the platform where you can meet like-minded people all over the world. Install the app now on the App Store or Google Play Store. Oh, and by the way, it's totally, completely, and fucking free. And if you're worried that there aren't enough people on C-A-S-L, people in the Dopey Nation should get on C-A-S-L and increase the population and enjoy sex and dating in recovery. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by people like you in the Dopey Nation through the power of the Dopey Patreon page. And I have to say that nobody goes to the Dopey Patreon page. I'm grateful for everybody who gives money to the Dopey Patreon page, but there's a shitload of content on there that's just totally free. If you want to give a few bucks, it totally helps the show. I appreciate it. We just got dopey socks in. We have dopey beanies in. We have dopey stickers. If you want them, you Venmo me at Dopey Podcast. If you want shirts or hoodies or long sleeves, you go to www.dopeypodcast.com. I know it's very complicated. I have to streamline our merch. Anyway, enough with the ads. Here is the show. Dopey, the podcast about drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And I am Dave, and uh, we're in Manhattan. It's a very special, special day. We have our dear friend who doesn't like to be listed on the show, the great Ray. Hi, Dave. Welcome back. Thank you. How you feel? I feel great. Ray's in the Dopey shirt. Huh? I feel good. You feel good? My father would. My father used to run around going, I, my father's name is James Brown. He would run around Say going... Say that slowly. Your father's name was James Brown. Yeah. And... At the drop of anything, he would start dancing and say, I feel good. It was very embarrassing. I'll tell you, I went, I worked a Christmas party last night uh, for Katz's. We did a catering event at this TV production company that almost made my, my web series into a reality. 
and they played all this James Brown Christmas music, and it's like not to be compared with anything else. You go to a party and they play James Brown music. That's a groovy thing. I mean, maybe I'm just old. Am I just old, or is it? Can, is it undeniably forever hip? No, it's going to be hard to follow that. Whatever song comes after James Brown's song is going to not be as tight, not be as funky. Yeah, my daughter always complains that I play too much James Brown, and I like if she's in the car with her friends, I totally pump James Brown, and like they're like, we don't like James Brown. But how could anybody? They don't like James Brown. They say they don't like James Brown, but if it's like everybody likes James Brown. And speaking of people who like James Brown. We have a special guest, a very, 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 very sweet old friend of mine. He's not a very old man, but he's an old friend of mine. His name is Danny. Welcome to the show. Hi, Dave. You got to get up on the mic or I'm going to fucking go crazy. Hola. Um, Danny was my boss many, many years ago when I used to produce my little bullshit music television show. It wasn't bullshit, though. It was a good show. Well, that's what people keep saying. <laughs> but uh, it, was one of the, it was the best show we had, I think. Well, in those days, um, there was no, like, real internet. Like, we didn't have a presence online, and nobody could write us about anything. You know what I mean? So I, I remember I would ask people to... That's actually, you know, that's a funny thing. That's totally true, because there was no sort of, like, uh, in, out no, for people. No, there was just out. Just out. There was no in. Yeah, there was which, no in. You're right. And, uh, and Danny uh, approached me recently saying he's a filmmaker, and he was like, I want to document Dopey. Um, so can I come and record? And I was like, of course you can. But if you come and record, I'd love to have you pop on the show and kind of reminisce for a second about, because Danny was very much in my life pre-addicted to heroin and post I mean, when you met me, I wasn't addicted to heroin at all. You weren't. You looked like you might have been. No. Did I really? When you first met me? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's, uh, it was an interesting thing because I, from what you told me, I kind of remember the the story about when you just kind of decided to become a heroin addict. But am I telling that right? Yeah, it, but that, it coincided with you giving me a contract. Right. You f- finally get enough money, and you're like, hmm. I just thought I could afford it. I remember when I walked into Danny's company, I was greeted by one of his partners who looked me up and down, and he said, uh, he said I don't know what you think, but I know I've done more drugs than you. That's what James said to me when I first walked in. That's so funny. And, uh, and I said, I'm sure you have, you know, thinking there's no fucking way that this guy has. But it doesn't matter. Anyway, it was while working at Danny's company that I became a total heroin addict. And I went from being a totally responsible par- participant. It took me like two years to go from totally fucking getting everything done to getting nothing done. It was like a, it was a slow crumbling mess that left crumbs and shit all over the place. But I never, I was never smart enough to figure out uh, what the hell was going on. I mean, I was so, I was so clueless. I was like, Dave's so creative and Dave's so uh, charismatic and eccentric. And you, the, honestly, the, you were producing such good stuff, even in the throes of what you were going through. Because, and some of it was kind of fucked up and raw, but that was amazing. Well, like when you went to do the, um, what was that big thing we did for Pepsi? Oh my God, Bandemonium! Yeah, you were like at that point you were kind of I was to- I was that's I was totally fucked up. You were in contract. Yeah, you're mm-hmm. like we, we probably were relying on you to produce a yeah. lot of the event down there. I was producing the whole thing. You and sent me not- to Chicago. <laughs> you sent me to Chicago to shoot Marcy's Playground in Chicago, and I and I was dope sick. 
And I get there and I'm just like talking to everybody in the bar looking for heroin. And I'm talking to everyone in the bar looking for heroin. And I'm like kind of setting up the cameras because like I could shoot pretty well, like pretty basically and whatever. Oh, it was with Alex Stimmel. And when we got to the hotel room, Stims. when we got to the hotel room, I said, listen, I have to tell you something. I'm a heroin addict and I'm in withdrawal. You know, I'm going to act weird, but it's because I'm in withdrawal and I'm a heroin addict. And I brought a ton of weed and we were getting high. And, um, and at the club, I found a dude who had heroin, but I also met a girl and I like decided I was going to go with the girl instead of get dope. And I was like, this is the first, this is like the first right decision I've ever made, you know? And of course that, that turned into her visiting me and me getting dope while she was here and her thinking she could save me. But yeah, you guys trusted me a lot. We trusted you a lot. And we, we, we were, it's not that we were exploiting you, but we were using what you were giving us, which was, which was golden. I mean, I can't wait to go back and look at this stuff because the time's coming to open up these old videos. It's been almost 20 years. And I'm just excited to see what we have. It's ridiculous. I remember, do you remember DK, my shooter? Yeah, I'm friends with him on Instagram. So, so me and DK. Meat flower. Yeah, meat flower. So me and DK go to shoot the Gathering of the Vibes. In um in in Stanford, right? Is it Stanford? Gathering the vibes was in Bridgeport. Bridgeport. Bridgeport I yeah. did mushrooms while I was shooting that. We went. We, we did that for for a few days, but me and Dave went Not on a, a different idea. on a different night. And Dave was fucking. We were both dope sick. And I said to Dave, I was like, "Listen, I'm going to get a bunch of dope. You tell me now what you need, and I will get it for you. But if you say you don't want anything, I'm not giving you any of mine. It's not going to happen." And he was like, no, I don't need it. Because he's, he's like Todd. The two of them acted like they didn't have habits, and they had habits. And I bought all this dope, and we drove up to Bridgeport. And he's like sweating, and he looked like shit. And if you see me in that Gathering of the Vibes, I'm like the highest I've ever been. Like my face is almost blurry. <laughs> I'm you, so high. You were like, uh, we, we had two beta camps. We had James's, and we had um, a rented one. And you were on the rented one. And I remember kind of reconvening with you at some point where you'd been off shooting, whatever. <laughs> the beta cam's like laying around and just a mess. Just but a total me mess. and him were just running around with, with your handheld. I think it was like a Canon XL1 Maybe or, one of those. Or, or the Panasonic, whatever that thing is, the three chip thing. And I loved shooting with those. It always looked great. But I remember when me and Brad were cutting it, there was this part where you just see my face and I'm just so fucking high. Like I'm just ruined. And, um, and, no, and, and, and that was the other thing, is that I could mask being a heroin addict because I was such a, a public stoner. Like, and, and like, right, that's true. You know, I had a bong in the edit room. We always got high. Like, it was easy to pretend like there wasn't something else going on. I was, I mean, I, speaking of getting high at work, I was definitely medicating myself. I, I at times, was walking around with a bottle of booze from Christmas or something that ended up in my office. And I'm like, I'm just, I'm just going to have a few shots because I need it. Right. It was... Um, yeah, I was wondering how you didn't weird. know that Dave was high. But also, but he was functional, able to produce. Because when I was on heroin, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't play a guitar. He was, he, he was producing the shit out of this show. And, and it was messy. But, but that was part of the We thought that was kind of the nature of it. And it was, it was beautiful. That's kind of like my go-to aesthetic because I can't do anything that isn't really messy. That's not true. With well, today's cameras, you can do anything you want. But it's like I like to be messy because I feel like it's raw and I feel like you're capturing this thing. Danny, tell the story of, uh, of uh, the lemon wheel, that whole road trip. 
and tell the story of the end of my of 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 the end of Burley Bear and um and like that story you were telling my well, father. Well, what was the, what year was the Lemon Wheel? Because I remember we went there. That was. Um, I want to say it was it was ninety ninety nine ninety nine. I bet I bet fish fans in the audience will tell us. I, was, I think I still have stickers and I can I can look. So but tell that, tell the tale. Well, the 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 main part the main the biggest part of it for me was it was the first time I had ever done mm-hmm. ecstasy, and that's that was really my big. That, that was, was the first time. That was the first time, and I think that was the best time. Um, well, that was funny because what I remember from that was that you and Scott. And and Brad Scott want- peed all over me in bed that night. Beautiful. Yeah, I, I stayed in the tent in the field. Did you? I think yeah. you hooked up with some girl in the field. I did. I did. That was a. It was, you were always hooking up with some girl. All right, take it easy. Come on, we don't, this is a family show, family drug addict show. Um, but uh, fucking, <laughs> they sent me out to find ecstasy, and uh, and I, I remember the, the the craziest thing. I might have been with you. Oh, because we had we were fiending and needed more. Right, so, but you sent me out for ecstasy, and I was like, I'm going to make sure to taste it, like to make sure it's good. And I think you and I, it was one of the most psychedelic moments of my life, and it wasn't even a psychedelic moment, but you and I were on bikes, biking around the thing, and I was talking to you about Todd, uh, and then Todd was there. Yes. And, and we, I was literally on the, just talking to Danny and while biking, he and he was sitting in front of we us. We were on those bikes. That's right. That was amazing. It was amazing. We were there for like five or six days, right? We were there for I a, think we were a there three. I think we were there three days. Three days. And, um, and, and then we drove to Georgia. But I also remember that that was another trip I took for Burley Bear where I left dope sick. I didn't bring heroin with me. And that night when I was looking for ecstasy... I was wandering around in the kind of open hair hippie drug market and some dude was going city drugs, city drugs. And I was fucking sick and I figured city drugs was heroin. So I went up to him and I said, I need city drugs. And, but I was with Honig and I was like, I was like, wait right here. And I could have done it in front of Scott and he wouldn't have known what I was doing. No, but I could see Scotty fucking the whole thing up too and saying something stupid, right? I, did, I was nervous that he would know what I was doing. Yeah. So I said, meet me back here in five minutes. And I wandered off. I like sent Honig to like get me a calzone or something. I was like, go over there. And, uh, and I go back and he's gone. And I like, I still am like, what happened to that guy? Like it's like losing your, losing your keys or something. He was pissing on me in bed. Wow, it's a beautiful thing. And then tell tell the story um, about like when you confronted me. I, I think it was on uh, w- our office was on Fifty Fourth Street between Broad and Eighth, and I right think, over Studio Fifty Four building. Yeah, and I think we were we were in the Studio Fifty Four. Yes, building. that's what I, I mean. I think we were. I think you and I were walking to get some pizza on on Eighth between Fifty. I love that Fifty Fifth. Yeah, 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 right. Yeah, and. We were going out because you had been fucking up a lot of things, a lot, and I was and I was coming back to me because I was the boss, and it was like, all right, I got to find out from Dave what the fuck. And I said to you, I was like, Dave, what, can you just explain to me what your fucking problem is, please? What is your malfunction? Like, what's your story? And you broke down, and you're like, I'm a heroin addict, and started crying, and I, and everything made sense. I started crying. Me. Yeah, you started sobbing. Wow. I guess I had a lot, of, a lot of pressure had built up. But people often say But everything this. made sense in that one second. It was like, oh, my God, of course you are. You're a fucking mess. Yeah. It's a shame. Because you go back and you want to, like... I mean, like, listen, my life, uh, I couldn't ask for a better life than the life I have right now. You're lucky. I'm so lucky. And, and who knows 
what would have happened had that gone differently, but it went the way it went. And there's something that people say all the time in concert with Dopey, which is that an opiate addict, an opiate addict can basically hold it together for 18 months, 24 months tops. And that's basically what my lifespan at Burley Bear was. And at the end, I was su- you, I, we had that moment, but like, I don't... Did I have to fire you? Yeah, but, um, but I don't know why. If we had that moment, I don't know why I said, can you send me to treatment? I think I said, I can handle it, or I don't know. Because what I, what, the reason I got fired was because I went to, to detox, public detox at Beth Israel, and I, had, I remember thinking this, I could call you guys and tell you what was going on, or I could tell my parents what was going on. You didn't tell us. And I didn't tell you. No. And I told my parents. And, uh, and then you guys fired me because I was in breach of contract. You were looking for a way to get rid of me because well, I was, was such a fuck-up. We, we, you know, we, we were always in a money-is-tight kind of situation. So for somebody that we were paying... A lot of money. A lot of money, it was like, you know, you gotta, we need it to work. So it came back to me, and it was really hard. But it, it wasn't going to be like I was like, you're fired. And you're like, what? You know, you were going to know exactly why. It was painful, but... I knew, I knew... A lot of that situation was painful anyway. For, for me, it was. It, so. was a, it, was, it was a crazy, crazy time. But now Danny has the idea to make a documentary about our little dopey podcast. And what inspired this? I've just gotten really into documentary filmmaking from the, a lot of the advertising and corporate work I do. And I was like, you know, I kind of... I was thinking about there's a guy that I'm friends with who's an amazing artist, sculptor, and like chiseled martial artist kind of guy. He's, he's nuts. And I was like, I got to do a doc on this guy just for pleasure. Just to, and then, I, and then I was like, you have such an amazing story. I mean, your story is like, I think it's phenomenal. Wow. So that, that's it. We're going to follow you around for a bit. So that's Danny. You have any questions for Danny, Ray? No. And Ray, how are you doing? What's going on? I'm good. What's new? Uh, I don't know. I'm re- kind of renovating my apartment this whole week. Well, tearing, tearing it apart. Well, that's not the only thing Ray's tearing apart. <laughs> Ray, after having four years clean and sober with the occasional MDMA in Ireland, had a slip. Yes. Would you like to? I mean, the Dopey Nation is a bunch of people who struggle with keeping their shit together. I'm sure they saw you freak out online. A lot of them. A couple of them. And um, and why don't we? Why don't you tell? Oh, I the, sent. I I sent a group. Facebook message to four people, some of whom had no business receiving. One of them was a girl that found me drunk, lost in Bushwick. I couldn't find the subway, because not because I couldn't find it, because I was in a blackout. And she brought me to the subway. So she was included in that list. I don't know her that well, but I was like, I was just saying, help, help, help. Um, <clears throat> I drank some vodka and blacked out, and I fell... And I woke up, and there was blood all in my bathtub <laughs> and in my bed. Where did the blood come from? My head. No way. Yeah. Where did you hit your head? Right there. But, like, where? You don't know what oh, I don't know. What? I don't know. Oh, my God. I didn't know. I went into the bathroom. I saw this blood in there. I was like, what is that? How did that get in it? But then, then I didn't drink. And then I drank again, and that's when I sent that group text message out. I was working. Then, I, I was I was working by by Madison Square Garden, like doing this thing for Katz's and the Knicks, and uh, and you text me that you drank, and I was like, and I called you, and you're crying, 
and I, it was like nine o'clock at night and I was going to get the train home and I was like, I was like, go to bed. I was like, I was in bed. I was like, go to sleep, <laughs> go to sleep and we'll talk tomorrow. You know, what I'm I mean? usually in bed cause I don't have any chairs in my apartment. <laughs> All I have is a bed. There you go. Um, so what happened afterwards? Like what kept you from drinking again? Like where are you at? You never, you didn't, you never followed my, my advice. Yeah. Dave was briefly my sponsor. For about 12 hours. Yeah. He was very mean. <laughs> How was I mean? He you made mean? me do 12 steps in 10 minutes in the bagel store downstairs. I saved your life. Have you had a drink after that? <laughs> no. It's all because of me. <laughs> it saved your fucking life. And then my real sponsor came over. Oh my God. <laughs> and we, he was like, Dave is full of shit. <laughs> really? What did he say? I said, you said Bob has to leave. And he's like, I, he's full of shit. And I was like, he made me do 12 steps in 10 minutes. And he's like, what the fuck? What else did and he we say? We had like a great like five-hour conversation. Who? You and, me, your, you me, and your real sponsor? Yes. My former ousting, sponsor. Ousting me as your temporary <laughs> sponsor. Yes. Dude, okay, to lay it on but me. Also, but also, so I've been talking to this friend of mine, too, and, and some of the people on Dopey Nation, too. I've been hearing this of like... You know, if you're a heroin addict and now you smoke weed once on the weekends, like, you're doing so much better. But this thing with, like, I'm going kind of down on AA of, like, oh, you had a slip. You have to go to the back of the line, and you're, like, a pariah, and you have to do this and that. And, like, I drank until I passed out. I blacked out every night for 25 years and did tons of drugs. And then I had, like, five years where I did, like, a little MDA, and I had a couple of bottles of vodka. You drank in the last five years, too? No, the last, last weekend. Besides that, yeah. But also when I started, you know, it was like I was going to meetings, meetings, but I was getting wasted every night, even when I was going to meetings. And so like, but generally the last five years has been a thousand percent improvement over the previous 25. So, and I've been hearing from people like, just like, AA is just too strict of like, you do this and then you're like, fuck, yeah, you, yeah, I don't know. Well, this is why we but started, f- this is why we started the alt-recovery movement. Alt-recovery, yeah. The alt-recovery movement. Copyright. Which, which says it's the skeleton key for addiction. I like that. Um, meaning it can solve all problems with all different solutions. Right. Okay. Although I believe, to my deepest, darkest belief, is that what I want the alt-recovery movement to be is like a way to actually get to the 12 steps. Like, I think people are afraid of the 12 steps, and people are afraid of oh, AA yeah. strict oh, and all this stuff. I've brought so many people to AA. I've had, like, no, well, very little success. People are turned off by it. I know, I, I it's know. It's creepy. Like, you go there, and it's, like, so religious and weird and culty and... Like, I don't know, I, 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 that didn't bother me, and the religion didn't bother me, but I've brought people, and they're like, I'm out, well, you just hold hands and pray, they're like, what the fuck, I'm out of here. Right, right, I know, I, I mean, I, like I said, I've said this a million times, if I didn't need something to save my life, I never would have, like, said that I like it. Yeah. But I needed to get better, and they gave me a tool to get better. The alt-recovery movement is this open-ended, kind of nicer way to say, if you want to get sober... It doesn't have to be right. twelve step, but let's get back to. And I, I probably, if John hadn't have taken me, my sponsor to meetings, I wouldn't have gone. If he, if he had suggested I go to meetings, when John showed up at the house to put me down yeah. and to take the money he had left and to like kick you while you were down, <laughs> did he take you to a meeting too? No. So like, why don't we go now, over came, this? He left when he lived with me. He left an entire closet full of his stuff for two years at my place, and then. I called him. I was like, I need you to come clean the closet out because someone else is moving in. And 
he came and he found seven $100, crisp $100 bills at the bottom of his closet. And no, he sounded like $750 because there was change. And too. then what happened? And then what does he say? Then he sees you wearing the dopey shirt, correct? Yes. So t- what happened there? This is, this is the, the important part of the story for me. Um, I said, Dave says, Bob has to like, be out of here. He can't live here. And he's like, that's bullshit. I didn't say Bob couldn't live there. I said, for your sanity. Yeah. You were fucking bouncing and, off the walls, crying and, every day, obsessed with this Bob. And I said, well, you shouldn't have Bob live with you then. I said that I didn't say he can't. I, I'm not your fucking yeah. boss. I can't tell you what to do. I can't remember what else John said. Something else. You don't remember? Wait, what did he say? He said, "What's dopey?" He said, "What's dopey?" Dude, are oh, you? Oh yeah, he you, said, you're, ruin, you're ruining the whole said, show right here. He said, "What's, what's dopey?" He did. He said, "What's dopey?" Oh, oh fuck! I know what he's like. He's like, Dave, "You're so I, intimidating." I, I do not approve. Fuck. He's like, I, "Here I, we go." I told this him where it gets who. Good. He does not approve of dopey. He never approved of me being on dopey. He says it's bad for your sobriety. It doesn't take sobriety seriously. And these celebrities that go on dopey and out themselves is totally uncool because it's not anonymous and that's like taken away from the program. Meanwhile, this fucking cunt, John, publicly posts on Facebook, I'm celebrating 25 years. Please be happy for me. Ooh, let's celebrate me today. That's true. It's because he wants to be a fucking famous celebrity who says he's fucking clean, and he puts down Dopey because he's fucking jealous. You should have him on the show. No, fuck this guy. <laughs> I met him when I got a year, and he was a fucking dick to me then. Ray says he doesn't like men. He only likes women. He says, I'm the only man he's ever liked. And because Ray's gay. Sorry, Ray. I don't think that's why. He says I mean, you're the only man he's ever <laughs> Yeah, he's like, I would like to live in a world where there's no men, except for you, Ray. And he puts down Dopey. He yeah. He chastises Dopey because he's jealous, correct? He chastises celebrities that go and on me. talk shows. And he said, fuck Dave. Yeah. Did he say fuck Dave? I think he did. <gasps> oh, my goodness. It's a very personal decision. Why would he say that kind of thing? It's not <laughs> nice. That's that shit I don't like. Oh, that's my daughter's mood ring. Jesus. Oh, wow. What kind of mood is she in? Um, she's very nice. She's a very happy girl. Um, so what do you think about that? Um, I, I, I kind of understood what he said and the thing with anonymity and, and like that's key to the program for, for several reasons, but I like Dobie and what the fuck he's told me to do. I texted him one time. I was like, I found some weed in my pocket and he's like, don't smoke. And I'm like, too late. <laughs> Did you smoke it? Yeah. When was that? Like in the first couple months of, it was, it was October and I got my winter coat out. I'm like, Oh, there's some weed in here. Well, listen. So I don't do everything that he tells me to do. The thing about... We had a great conversation. John is very smart, and he's very well-versed in the program and sobriety, and we talked to... He's very... He's total atheist, but he's like an expert on, like, all religions. He's very smart. I've decided we're going to now play this amazing interview. You ready? Yeah. What? This is the great Chris Dangerfield coming to you from fucking... Cambodia by way of England. And this guy is is amazing. So I'm very, very happy that this guy is on the show. And here is Chris Dangerfield. All right. This is very exciting. I have made a few classic <laughs> rookie and ex- I only done a podcast for four years to know to plug in the the bloody cables. But um 
Fucking, I'm on Skype with Chris Dangerfield from Cambodia. Chris is a stand-up comic, a fucking lockpick salesman, a YouTuber, a blogger, and uh, and we've been futzing around with various technologies to make it work. We had just recorded seven pristine minutes, but I realized I hadn't plugged in any of the cables. So welcome back to the show, Chris Dangerfield. <laughs> Hi. Um, I don't actually perform stand-up anymore. I've done 10 years of stand-up, but now it's all YouTube. I'm, I'm an aging human, so the sit-down comedy is uh, preferable. And there's not a very big uh, stand-up scene in Cambodia, so... Do you miss it? You know, but everything else is true. No, it was horrible. I'll, I'll tell you the story of my last gig at some point. And, oh, no, tell me now. What was, what was if it? If you're doing well, it's horrible. What was uh, it? In fact, when I, when I think of my 10 years in the business which is generous um the early years were great yeah open mics meeting loads of new people hanging out with them you know going mad when you get a, a review in a local newspaper but by the end of it when i was earning pretty decent money out of it you know thousand pound a gig or whatever and having four pages in national newspapers i was sick to death of it <laughs> what did you hate about it uh, well, politically, um, I got a fair fair idea of what's going on in America, but in England now, you, you know, unless you're on the, I'd say far left, you know, you're not going to make it in stand-up, and I'm not. I used to be. I was once a communist, but I am quite, not, I am far, far from a communist today. And, uh, and not only that, you know, being a white male trying to be a comedian is 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 a joke now of course you, you know you're on the outskirts of that I so, always, yeah. I, I, well, I, i'm sorry chris continue my bad well sorry the, the other thing is it, you know even if you make it and, and make it not even big big but as a as a job in comic you're spending your nights in bars you're spending your nights in clubs you're sleeping in hotels you're on the road a lot it's just not a great life. <laughs> it's, just, it's not nice. I feel like it's a great a great life for being very young. You know, it's a great it's a great early life where you don't have to be anywhere. I would have loved to have been anywhere when I was a kid, and I never like left my. I mean, I grew up in New York, but I never left New York when I was a kid. And looking back, I kind of wish I had tried more stuff. I always wish I had tried. I did stand up twice. One time I was great. One time I was terrible. And uh, and I'm not built for stand up. Number one, because I never tell jokes. But number two, because I don't. I can't stay up late. I like. I go to bed early. I, I'm too tired at <laughs> night. I used to play in bands. I was once in a band that uh, opened for uh, the Whalers, like Bob Marley and the Whalers, after Bob Marley had died. And I fell asleep in the back of the club at like eleven. Like that's just how I've been. I was also really stoned, but I'm just an early to bed type. Um, I think I think that's a, a fair enough comparison, actually. Uh, you know, if you're in a rock band, it's a lot of on the road. It's a lot of late nights. It's a, and again, yeah, maybe 20, 20, early 20 is great. Or being very, very successful, you know, the, the, the pinnacle where you're staying in very nice hotels and being driven around, yeah. But pretty much everything in between those two extremes is ghastly. Right. And when you were doing comedy, were you, were you, were you clean or were you in active addiction? Well, I, I started clean. It was one of those things, you know, I was in a rehab center and it was all about, shit, what am I going to do with 24 hours in a day? This is ridiculous. You know, I, I used to eat Valium for breakfast. I was shooting up all day. You know, it was 
suddenly I was going to have to face myself in the world for 24 hours. And, and, and in a good rehab centre, they talk to you about how to deal with this. And, and there'd be people saying, oh, oh, oh. when I, I used to think like that, but now I'm, now I'm 10 years clean. There's not enough hours in the day. I understand that now, but two weeks clean, I was like, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, right. yeah. You, sound like, you sound like a Christian trying to sell me God. But when I got towards the end of that rehab, I thought, it's, it's time to do something. It's time to um, come up with something. And I was watching a load of an American comic called Doug Stanhope, and I hadn't seen him before I was in that rehab. And he wasn't telling jokes. He was telling stories. And I'd always been very much into storytelling. You know, I grew up in a very working class area and just being in pubs listening to groups of men telling the most amazing stories you know like orators just these incredible performances on like a Tuesday afternoon in the local boozer and I thought yeah I can do that and I remember a friend I'd made in rehab when I said to him I said listen I think I'm going to do stand-up comedy when I get out of here and I'd always, I'd always told stories socially and I was known to be a bit mouthy and I'd done a fair amount of performing in my time I've been in bands and all that and he said to me yeah what what, what are you going to do then what sort of stuff are you going to do and I said, well, I once had sex with a disabled girl on, on LSD. <laughs> yeah, and, and he said, he, 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 no laughter at all. He shook his head and he just went, that, you can't, that's not a, a performance. That's not. So wait a second. Are you, did you actually have sex with a disabled girl on LSD? Yeah, for sure. Wait, wait, hold on, hold on. Hold on. Were you on LSD or was the disabled girl on LSD? I was on LSD, <laughs> yeah. So let's hear the story. <laughs> Well, no, I'll tell you for sure. But it was the first story I told in my 10-year stand-up career. Again, career's generous. And it was the last story I told as well. You know, it was a, it was a, a story all along. It's going to be a bit strange telling you because I've performed it so many times. I don't want to perform it now. I don't really want to play it for last. So I'm going to try and just tell you what happened. Tell it straight, <laughs> so, but give us a couple of laughs too. What the fuck? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, that's, I'll try and find a happy medium. So... There was a party somewhere, I think it might have been Streatham, South London, around that area. I had friends living in Camberwell, and we were we were all told, you know, there was this party going on. So we all went along, and uh, I had some acid on me. I had a few different blotters on me, and I gave a couple out, and I had two myself. I was quite into acid as a young man. And, you know, washed it down with a pint of lager, another pint of lager, a bit more, a few dabs of speed. That's uh-huh. not speed that they have in America, not, not methamphetamine. It's amphetamine sulfate. They make it in baths in England. Like people grow it. It's like a, some chemical <laughs> nightmare. And uh, so I was absolutely charging. And, you know, it's very hard to explain acid, but everything was looking good. <laughs> I was thinking, here we go. This part is amazing. Who would have thought to put a party on in this huge Gothic mansion? <laughs> and it was just a flat in Streatham, which you won't know, but it's just like housing estate. <laughs> right. But it, it, I thought it was like this sort of manor house that no one knew about that had appeared in the in in, in time. <laughs> and and then there was this Gothic girl. And she had this sort of long flowing black dress and all this sort of gothic eye makeup. Yeah. And then she looked at me, you know, worlds, worlds combined. They didn't collide, they combined. And I just thought, oh, I made for her. She's made for me. We are two parts of a puzzle that is yet, that, that, that at the moment ceases to exist. And so I made a move on her, but sort of an acid move where I was just sort of like, eh, <laughs> like sort of mentally retarded. Yes. But, you know, we smoked a few joints and, and, at this stage, it's key to point out I didn't... If I hadn't have told you she was disabled, 
when I tell the story, I don't mention that yet. She's just a girl, okay? And uh, well, she is just a girl anyway. <laughs> she is just See a girl, point. even if she's disabled, yeah. yes. And then she said it was actually her place. And I can remember sort of trying to get it out of her, how she managed to have this wonderland in the middle of a housing estate. And even as I was asking her, I can remember, it, you know, reality was jarring with this LSD fiction in my head because I sort of knew it couldn't be and it might just be the acid, but, you know, I couldn't hold on to that thought long enough for it to materialise into something I could understand as reality. So anyway... I, she sort of said, do you want to come up to my room? And I thought, bingo, we're on. You know, I was only young, like 20 or something. So then we're in this spiral staircase, and she's above me, and she's got this long dress on, and it was all just medieval. And I was just thinking, oh, I'm mean, <laughs> some sort of, you know, I'm this sort of charming sort of I'm minstrel or something. You know, if she's got a guitar, I'll be upstairs in a minute going, I've come to your party for some drinks. Fa-la-la-la-la-dee-dee. It was all, you know, bizarre. Yes. And there was all all sort of uh, greenery growing up the walls and all around us. And I was thinking, yeah, where are we going? What cave of delights awaits us? <laughs> and she's opened her bedroom doors and it didn't let me down. It it, it looked like the future. <laughs> it was just like suddenly we'd, we'd arrived in some sort of, it was almost like a, a technological middle age, almost like a, like a like a computer, modern computer game, like digital sort of medieval period, and that was also all very exciting. And and before long, we were having sex. You know, we were just all over each other, and I thought there was arms going everywhere. Certainly more arms than you know that than two people have got, and it was all hands and all this business. And then we ended up doing having sex doggy style so she was on her hands and knees on the bed and I was sort of standing be- no kneeling behind her doing what you do and then I noticed for the first time now I don't know how long we'd been chatting or whatever maybe 30 minutes could have been a year but I noticed that she had no hands oh my god and, yeah and I really had to sort of focus but they were she had hands but all her fingers were fused together like on both hands wow yeah and she was leaning um, people obviously can't see but imagine you fuse all your fingers together you're on, all, you're on your all fours but you're sort of resting on the nub of your wrist right right so right right your, your fused fingers are pointing backwards and I've noticed both sets of these things. Did you notice it while I, did you notice it while you were fucking her? Or afterwards? That was the first, no, that while I was fucking her, because I've now got clear view of her sort of reversed nub things. <laughs> and what I tried to do, I thought I thought it was weird because there was a simultaneous thought that I had to I had to orgasm she had to orgasm and the gravity of that happening was was increasing rapidly it became significant there was i was tapping i mean dave listen my my career on lsd is uh to say weird is 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 rather predictable but my first ever lsd trip i i was taken through a history of language my first ever mushroom trip i was taken through a history of uh, Marxist modes of production. <laughs> They've right. been very peculiar themes around my trips, but I get an idea and the brain kind of runs with it. And with this one, I was tapping into this sort of the the, the primordial no the, no not primal primeval kind of need to procreate and create birth and the importance of intercourse, the significance of coitus. It all became really heavy. 
and and it was on me to kind of make it happen and i started thinking about the future of the species and 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 you know it's time dangerfield to make a baby <laughs> <laughs> and, and and then of course i was caught between well there's there's i understand that you need to, we need to you know create another you know spawn of me but is a girl with no hands necessarily the the right receptacle for the for the magic juice? I feel though, like but, while you're fucking her, right, and you're tripping, and you notice she has her hands have no fingers; they're fused together. I would get all psychedelically traumatized by that. Like, am I hallucinating that she doesn't have fingers? Like, like I would have some sort of weird, like I'm not really seeing what I'm seeing. Feeling you didn't get anything like that. Well, no, because the visual, the visual aspects of my trips tended to be, you know, patterns and colours, and there was no, you know, what maybe the I, I don't remember that. My my concern was with hiding them. This was what because you didn't want to see them. Yeah, I mean, with the gravity of saving the world on me, with the gravity of the future of the species weighing down on me, which is obviously causing my penis to sort of not be at its best, I thought, right, you've got to up your game a bit. First thing to do, cover them up. And I remember I pulled the duvet over to, while I was sort of, sort of got on top of her a bit more, rather, rather than just in the traditional sort of perpendicular. And I've sort of tried to cover one hand by sort of, sort of <laughs> ruffling the duvet over it a bit. And then I've tried to do the other side, but I can't quite reach to the other side because one hand's a bit further forward. And then I started thinking that, that it was the bet, the bet, the duvet, because I'd pulled one side, I'd, I was sliding it from, so I wasn't, but I thought that maybe the ruffled up one side meant there wasn't enough duvet on the left side to cover that one. And then I was getting caught up in this really bizarre puzzle. And she, anyway, the bottom line is she realized what I was trying to do. She realized that I'd noticed. She realized I was trying to cover them. And she went, she, she said something like, I take it you finally noticed my hands. I'm still fucking her, by the way. Oh my and she God. went, I, I take it you've noticed my, you've, no, the key word was finally. You know, as in I should have, I should have re- respected her disability a lot earlier or something. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she went, why don't you take the piss out of me? Which is English for ridicule me. Yes. So what did you do? Right. Did you say I love fucking your flipper body or you didn't say anything? Well, no, no, your spot, you've almost hit the nail on the head. Well, the, my first thought was this isn't something that I've practiced. I haven't, as a, as a young man, I didn't, sort of, you know, learn about how to take the piss out of someone's hands. So my first one was just something like, your hands are rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> and, and she wasn't impressed. And then soon I just, I was, I was going, you fucking spastic. Is that a word you have in America? No, but I like English stuff, so I'm with you. Yes. It used, well, there used to be an organization for disabled people, like a, a charity, and it was called the Spastic Society. And it comes from the word spasticated or something. It's something to do with cerebral palsy. But all the kids at school that had anything slightly wrong with them were called spastics. So they changed it. But, you know, you can still ruffle a few English feathers by calling someone a spastic. Well, hold up, hold so up, was, hold up, hold up. Did the woman, she liked to be ridiculed. It turned her on. She like well, yeah, that, you're tripping yeah. acid, thinking you're in some primordial English situation in a castle, and and you're and you're having sex with this, uh, you know, disabled woman. You notice her hands 
are fused almost like flippers. She's so happy that you've noticed because now you could turn her on by ridiculing her. Is that, am I up to speed? Well, I, I don't know. That's exactly what's happened, but it was the way she said, oh, you finally noticed them. And when I was sort of going, uh, well, uh, yeah, and then she went, go on, take the piss out of them. Yeah, she, she wanted, wanted it. Be... She wanted it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I understand it now. I mean, out of the out of the weight of the acid and the madness situation, I understand she probably, she almost certainly lived a life of people uh, sort of, you know, sort of pussyfooting around them and sort of I don't see disability and all that nonsense and so I can understand why in a sexual situation she'd want someone to draw absolute vile attention to them because you know it's probably what she felt she was probably kind of disgusted and I get that you know it makes sense so I've run with it and I was just going you fucking spastic look at your fucking ass and then this is why you when you said flipper I was quite impressed because then I was going, you, I went, you look like a fucking lobster, you dirty bitch. <laughs> oh, my God. And she was going, ah, ah, you know, which I assume is the sound of her enjoying it. And then I just was, it got a little bit weird because, <laughs> that's like a strange thing to say. It got more, it got strangely weirder because, you know, I... My my imagination was a bit strange, and I was sort of I was calling her a crustacean, which <laughs> I'm not. You know, I literally said, "You you you sexy crustacean," and you know that's not great, is it? Anyway, this went on for some time, and I was sort of saying things like, "You you well, after I finish fucking you, I'll be throwing you back in the water so you can swim around with all the other stupid lobsters, slags, and all this," yeah. and it was just weird. Anyway, finally, I saved the earth and I, I, I came. And I think she might have done as well. I, it's hard to say. And then I just sort of, you know, I sort of fell flat on the bed, you know, <gasps> with it all going around me. And she she laid down next to me and she lit a cigarette and I lit a cigarette. And, you know, we didn't say much. And it was all just quite nice, really. I was, you know, a bit... I didn't really give a shit about the hands. It was a good fuck. We both seemed happy. But then she stood up and she had no clothes on now. And what I hadn't noticed before, when she stood up, she had like a, you can see this, Dave, but she had like, it's like a partially inverted spine. Like her ass really stuck out and her back was overly curved. Right. Some sort of and, in, intense scoliosis situation. Yeah, yeah, which was confirmed in in a couple of moments. But the weird thing was, when I first saw it, my first my first acid response, I thought <laughs> I'd done that. Oh my god! <laughs> I thought, yeah, I snapped her spine. It was so good. But then she's <laughs> she's, <laughs> she's reached out and put this sort of flesh coloured NHS brace thing on. And as she's pulled, I, I hadn't seen this thing before, but I'm assuming it was, you know, it was in a pile with her clothes. She just grabbed it from, a, you know, what was once a gothic dress was now a National Health Service spinal sort of correction uh, corset. And she's put it on and she pulled these um, straps and it sort of straightened her spine. And by this point, I was just thinking, you know, what is it with LSD, man? You you take it and you just let the weird people arrive. And this one was just, you know, that uh, it's just too much. And she, I love that. She sta- I love that. Sorry, I love this story. Yeah, I mean, I'm still friends with her, you know, and she knows I tell the story. She's she's been in the audience and heard me tell the story, and I've even called her out. And at the end of it, I went, and you want to know? 
that's her there. And she puts her hand up and sort of waved to the, to the people. Well, she launched your comedy career, basically. She gave you the first, the first go. <laughs> but the question is, and this is a dumb question, how does she smoke a cigarette if her fingers are all fused together? Well, this is rather, it's always the devil in the details because upon further inspection, because I am around for a good 20 minutes. <laughs> but you know, when she's got all her fingers fused together, there, there was like on one hand, there was like a little finger right. that sort of stuck out a little bit. <laughs> and this is, this is a bit hideous, yeah. And she wedged the cigarette in between that and the sort of stump as a whole. However, clearly she'd done it a few times. And you know those little, she, she was smoking roll-ups. You know those little yellow stains you get on your fingers if yeah. you smoke too many? Yeah, it had those. It had a little yellow bit in the V. And I was, I was a little bit disgusted. After everything that had happened, that was what got me. That little nicotine stain That's so in funny. the sort of... <laughs> Her fingers had turned orange because she only had one spot to smoke them in. <laughs> ay, ay, ay. Um, so that was in the beginning, that was you had just gotten clean and you had decided that you had some fucked up stories and you were going to try stand up kind of with your, your drug addict stories, basically, or your using stories. Yeah. 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 And like, when, when, when did you, that was the first time you got clean? Was that the biggest uh, run for sobriety or recovery at that yeah, point? Yeah. I'd, I'd been to, I mean, I've lost count, but if you include detox centers and rehabs, I don't know if you have a distinction in America, but in England, you can just do a detox. Sure. We, yeah, we have it your, Sure. Yeah. So <laughs> probably about 20 or 20 or so. And I'd really never lasted, you know, I'd walked out, I'd, I'd done the three weeks in a detox and I scored on the way home or I'd done a week in rehab and just climbed out the window. I'd never got anything more than about a day you know, once I'd left the center, I had some quite good sort of three or four week periods in centers, but never, never anything sustained. But at 35, I, you know, I was yellow. I weighed about, I don't know, about 60 kilos. I'm six foot two. So I was very, very thin. I was carried in pretty much. I was literally carried in. And, uh, it was the old hands up. Come on, uh, for the first time in my life, I'm going to listen to some other people's ideas. And yeah, I I got four four about four and a half years out of that. And you were in you were in England then. Mm. And and what was the end of the worst run like? Like, tell us about what your life was like then. Sorry, I, what what do you mean? Like, what were you using? What was the life like? How were you living? How were you paying for it? Like, you were on heroin. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, the, the the oh, you mean the worst run using? Yeah, the end. It's kind of the end of the worst. You know what I'm saying? Well, yeah. Well, it was long before that because actually things improved because while I was using, I set up a very successful business. You know, it kind of goes against the stereotype, but you know, when my when my actual using in terms of quantities consumed was its worst. I set up a business that was turning over in, t- in dollars at the time about $8,000 a day. Well, what is that? I read about it. It's a lock picking business. What is that? How does yeah, that work? Um, well, <laughs> how does it work? Well, yeah, it's, a, it's an online lock picking business. People come to us to buy tools to pick locks. And uh, I've got Lockpick World in America and UK Bump Keys that covers UK and Europe. I am not the sole owner anymore because. 
after another period relapsing, I took my eye off the ball. Well, weirdly, I took my eye off the ball in, in that four years I got clean. You know, I, I was so committed to wanting to be a comedian. I, I just couldn't be asked with being a businessman. It didn't suit my new chosen identity and i really took my eye off the ball and pretty much fucked it all up i mean it's been saved it's still what i do today it's my job but i'm not the sole owner anymore well how did you get into lock picking in general like how did that become the business you got into while you were using did you were you thieving was that a thing like that just seems the the obvious connection and that's what i usually say for laughs i'll say well you know i decided to i got clean and decided to go legit but no not at all um how i'll tell you what happened i was living at my mum's you know i was 32 or something living at my mum's and just doing nothing shooting heroin smoking weed drinking and uh and, and valium and a friend of mine a very good old school friend would pop around occasionally and smoke weed with me and he said look he said you're an intelligent bloke you can do anything really why don't you sort something out? And I, you know, I didn't want to hear about that. And he gave me a computer and it was still in dial up days. And he gave me this big chunky boxes and a crappy massive monitor. And the first night I had it, he got me online. Like I say, dial up, got me online and, uh, I found a forum and, uh, and, it, it was, it, I can't even remember what the forum was, but I'd also found online that night, this thing called a bump key which is a key that's got a special pattern cut into it to make it able to open all of the locks that that blank fits into. So let's say it's a Yale A1 blank. There's millions of locks that'll fit. You put this special pattern onto it, that'll open, that'll then open with a little bit of technique and a bit of knowledge, all of those locks. And that was mind-blowing. So my friend come back around the next night and I said, he said, what have you been doing online? I said, well, I've been looking at this weird thing called a bump key and I've also been on a forum. And I thought it was magical being able to talk. I remember the first person I ever spoke to online was an, uh, a steel worker from Illinois. And uh, I'd been doing a bit of ecstasy at the weekend. I remember I was feeling really emotional and, uh, <laughs> it, you know, it was just... It was just beautiful that this man in Illinois, and he was, you know, he was an American. I'd never spoken to an American, and he was all like, yeah, man, I wake up, drive my truck to the steelworks, and, you know, I cut steel. And I was like, <laughs> that's, so, that's, that's so wholesome, man. I love it. Keep it up, you know. God bless America. Yeah. And, um, and, then, and then I said, yeah, and I joined this forum, blah, blah. And he said to me, well, how about we make you a forum? And, you know, that just appealed to my narcissism. What, Planet Dangerfield, my own forum, let's go, what, I'm the boss? And he he said, yeah, it's not hard. And he got this little template, I think it was PHPBB or something weird. And he said, all right, what do you want the forum to be about? And literally, just for lack of anything else, because he just needed a name, you know, it's like when you usually might just put a, a load of X's or something when you ask for a name on a game. And I went, UK Bump Keys. And so he set up this forum and I wrote a post saying I've I'm, I've been messing around with bump keys. And that night, the next night, I got a couple of blank keys. No, I got a key that had been cut that was laying around my house and some files I had, some little rat tail files, and I, I cut this bump pattern into it just from what I'd seen in photographs online. And uh, I bumped my mum's front door lock with it. And and it had opened, and I was like, "Whoa, this that's is amazing. magic!" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so I made this post on my forum, and I was like, "Yeah, I've I've I'm, I've got bump keys. I've got them for all the popular brands." I didn't. I had one for a Yale One A, and I only knew that was what it was because it had it written on the key. 
about three days later, I had about 500 members of my forum. That's insane. All these, yeah, all these professional locksmiths and security professionals talking about bump keys because there was this sort of media explosion about this terrible new fear. Oh, everyone's going to get robbed now. And, uh, of course, it didn't take long before they were saying, can I order one? And I was like, yeah, what profile? And they'd tell me. I'd go down to the shoe repair shop <laughs> who cut keys while you wait, buy blanks off of them, make the bump key by hand with a file. Each one would take me about an hour. And then I said to him, well, send send a tenner to my mum's house. <laughs> I didn't say that to him, but I'd be like, you know, I had no payment processes or anything. I'd say, put £10 to this address, enclose your return address, and I'll send you one. And at the end of the second week, I had over six, so about at the time of the conversion, about $900 it's in insane. cash. And you're using? I was, a, I was about to say, I was a using heroin addict. <laughs> I had $900. <laughs> On my, literally every day, five, six, seven, just coming through all these envelopes with money. Some of them 20, 30 quid, which about, I won't keep doing the conversions. In, in that day, a dollar was, it was about $2 to one pound. So you, you, get, the, you get the idea. And so after a while, I was then getting the shoe shop to cut the keys because I thought, you know, he said to me, why do you keep buying blanks? I told him and he said, well, we can cut them for you. So then they were cutting them. Then I bought a key cutting machine on eBay and a really cheap one. It was like only about 50 quid. And uh, then I was knocking them out. And then I thought, this, this lock picking lark's all right for free money. So then the bloke that gave me the computer knocked me up a website on Dreamweaver, which was this really shitty bit of web, you know, early days, make your own website sort of thing. And then I found some suppliers who could sell other lockpicking equipment. So I started with the money I was making, I started buying a few like pick guns, they're called. You put them in, pull the trigger, and if you're lucky, it opens. So the question, they were selling, like, the question is, right? right, you're growing this business and you're a fucking heroin addict and you're making money, and the business is succeeding, right? Mm. I mean, that's pretty unheard of. And, and did the success in the business make the using, like, grow crazy? Well, yeah, because before, up until then, for the 10 years before that, I was running around the estates trying to get together, like, you know, a cigarette paper with next to no heroin in it. But after about two months of my business being set up, I had a nine-ounce block that I was putting the spoon into. Right. You know, I wasn't putting the gear in the spoon. I was putting the spoon <laughs> oh in the gear. Oh, my God, that's crazy. I just... <laughs> I had, a, I had a kilo of skunk that was holding the kitchen door open just on the floor. And yeah, and I, but the weird, this is the weird thing because I'd always made excuses. I'd, I'd always rationalized the mess I was in because if only I had enough of the drugs that I need to get through life, I'd be all right. Of course, when you've got that sort of money floating around, and I'll cut the short story short, but very soon we were turning over 5,000, sometimes 5,000 pounds a day. And the profit was about 85%. I had no one else working for me, no marketing, no nothing. I bought the stock and sold the stock. You know, that was it. And uh, and so suddenly I have, I've got a couple of kilos of the finest skunk. I had 50,000 Valium I had shipped in from Thailand. And, and I had this nine-ounce block of heroin. And... Um, of course, I was just going yellow. I was falling asleep in the chair that I woke up in. I was barely eating. I was just disappearing. You know, what I does was, you know? What does a nine ounce block of heroin look like? It's not actually as big as you'd think it 
was actually. Um, like what well, color is it's it? About, it? It's tar? Well, what does it look no, like? No, because in England we don't have tar and we also don't have Southeast Asian number four, the white stuff. We have, um, it's actually a crude base. It's a diacetylmorphine base. It's, it looks like gravy powder, very fine brown powder. I mean, it was a block. It was a solid, though. You know, I had to break it up a little bit, but that was easy enough. Just smashed a bottle of Pledge in it. But, um, yeah, it looks... It's about the size of a TV remote control, a little bit bigger. Was that the biggest amount of heroin you ever had? I mean, that's crazy. I remember when I bought a gram, I was like, oh, my God, I have a gram of heroin. You know, it was like it was exciting because I would always buy a tenth of a gram at a time or whatever, you know? (laughs) Not really, because I did get into... Dealing it a little bit later, I was. I ended up dealing crack and heroin, and you know there was a, occasional times when I'd have. They came in nine ounce bars, and I'd have four of them in one bag, so a kilo of, of heroin. But my own personal, yeah, I think I, you know, when that run out, I just bought another nine ounces, and it was cost effective. <laughs> but I was going yellow. I had I had nearly two hundred and fifty thousand, so a quarter of a million pound in my bank account. And I just wasn't doing anything. I wasn't, you know, if you've got that sort of money, you'd expect you'd be going out or going on holiday or buying boats or something. And I wasn't, you know, I was just up all night obsessing over girls I'd met on the internet, all that sort of usual madness, falling in love with complete strangers, thinking we'd probably get married tomorrow. And an ex-girlfriend just said, look, why don't you go to rehab? You've got some money. You might be able to buy yourself into one better than the crappy ones you've always gone to. And I did. And, and and I think because I knew that I'd be coming out to a load of money and a successful business, it, it really motivated me because all the other times I'd gone into rehab, I knew I'd be coming out to welfare and shitloads of problems and nothing to fill my time up. But knowing, you know, while I was in there, I didn't know how much money I had, but it was only when I put my card into my bank, I realized how rich I'd become. And it was only as my head started clearing up that I thought, you know, you've got a real possibility here for a good future. And you can start enjoying yourself. The only thing that's going to stop that is the drugs. And so, yeah, so I knocked them on the head. Dude, this wasn't is, easy. This is an insane <laughs> story. I've heard so many stories about people giving up dope habits and none of them I don't think I don't remember ever hearing a story where anyone gets off heroin and has money in the bank and does it logically so they can have a better life. I mean, that's a real I mean, maybe that's how you can use occasionally now because you have just such a different kind of story. Right. You know what? In that in that rehab set, I'm getting a bit of an echo there, Dave. Hello. Yeah, it's gone. Okay. When, when when I was in that rehab center, it was challenging for the staff as well because you have to do things like, I don't know if it's the same in America, but you have to write 20 things you're going to do when you leave and that you need to do. And everyone else would be things like, I've got to go to citizen's advice. I've got to talk to the courts. I've got to sort out that warrant. I've got to talk to my children's care officer, you know, usual stuff, probation officer. Mine was things like, I need to talk to my accountant. Yeah. <laughs> I've got to... I've, I've got to see my SEO agent has sorted out, you know, and, and it was right. all like big, successful business things. There's a hot and, tub and I've the, been fancying. I'm thinking yeah. about purchasing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. of course. And, and there, was some, there was some really weird arguments in there, as you can imagine, in group therapy where it got to the point where, you know, the therapist was going, you know, you, you, you keep, we hear you around this place telling people stories of this and that, but what you've got to remember is your life is a mess. And I'll be going, yeah, but I earn five times as much as you. 
<laughs> but that fucks you up too. I mean, they think you're a liar, and they—that's another thing. They think there's only one way in order yeah. to escape this thing because that way is pretty effective, and most junkies do fucking lose critical things in their life. When I finally got clean in the end, I had more money than I ever had also. I didnnn't have much money though. I was just working and and I got clean because uh, I had a kid and I wanted to be like present in her life. Uh, but mm-hmm. I wasn't at the bottom, bottom, bottom financially as I was spiritually. And I think that might be similar to our stories that you were at the bottom spiritually. No, absolutely. You know, if I hadn't have gone to rehab, then I think I would have died because, as you know, not only was I addicted to drugs, but there was a certain amount of drama that I I needed in my life to continually distract me from myself when the drugs stopped working. And and that was getting out of hand. One little thing I would like to tell you, though, I became very good friends with the boss of that treatment centre while I was there and still am now. But towards the end of my time there, the treatment centre was in trouble financially and it was going to have to close down and this happened quite a lot you know it was reliant fully on donations and and paying clients but I was the only one paying when I was there out of about 20 people and uh he tapped me up for 30,000 pound to keep the rehab that I was in going (laughs) while you were in there he said like you're in a patient he's like oh you think you can spot me 30,000 pounds (laughs) that doesn't happen hang on Hang on, I know that there are ethical issues with that. I was a, a men, to an extent a mental patient, but he, I still am very good friends of him, and I trust him implicitly, uh, explicitly. And but what was funny was there was a big argument towards the end of it because I was meant to be graduating, and they said no, you're not because you didn't do your family group. And I said yeah because you didn't sort it out in time. I was given this date to leave. Where was my family group? And then they went, you were, you were reluctant. You were resistant to it. Resistant said, to treatment. Yeah. To the family group. Yeah. And I said, find someone in this room who wasn't resistant to the family group. I said, you never sorted it out. This is on you. I'm leaving on Saturday. And what I didn't say to them, which I knew though, and I think I was a better man for not, but right on the like edge of my mouth was, by the way, I'm paying your wages, so watch out. <laughs> yeah, I'm fucking your boss here. Um, I want to... <laughs> I'm also curious about this because you, you, the treatment worked. You know, you got out of there. You were not addicted to heroin, and you got four and a half years clean, which ironically is how much time I have right now and the most time well I've ever had. Um, it's a massive achievement, man. Well done. No, I appreciate it. Um, what? And I and I'm incredibly happy to have done it. And I don't like I don't sit around longing for the days. Like I'm very excited to see what can come to me like this. I love it. Um, and I, I, I also sound like I don't like how that sounds. Like I don't like hearing those words come out of my mouth, but it's the truth. You no, know? it's brilliant. It feels me. It's great to hear, man. Um, when you, because like I, I wouldn't say you're obviously not quote unquote using, but if you feel like using something, you use it. When did it change and how did it change? How did it go from the hardcore uh, recovery and a sobriety to kind of like here and there thing? Well, I was it was proper hardcore as well. I mean, I'd done the I'd done the um, meter and greeter at NA. I'd done the T at NA. I moved all the way up the hierarchy. I know it's not, but it kind of is. And I was the secretary of the biggest meeting in Soho, London, which is in the centre of London. You know, 300, 200 people go to that meeting. Loads of famous celebrities and pop stars from the eighties who all washed up in NA. And I was like well-known figure in in sort of London NA and spout in recovery all the time and and, and meaning it because I loved it. And then 
I went to Thailand for seven days at the time of my life, never traveled properly before, came back to England and a friend in recovery said, and I was just, I was going, it was so good. It was amazing. And he said, book another holiday now because you'll forget how amazing it was. So I booked eight weeks. I went out there. I was doing the gym at the time. I was all fit and buff and all that. And I was in the gym in Thailand and I suddenly, my back went and it was a, it was the injury that had happened before. So I knew what was happening, but they had to carry me back to my hotel. When it happened before, I consulted with my sponsor and he said, let them give you whatever they want. But if you get any takeouts, because I was living with my mum's when it happened before, they said, give the takeouts to your mum and make, let her distribute them to you. And they gave me Valium and Tramadol, right? right? And, and it was fine because my mum had them. She didn't let me have more than one every like eight hours and that. And over a few days, I stopped taking them anyway. And it, they sort of inconsequential, really. But this was a, a lot later. And um, I was in my room and I thought, I've got seven weeks in Thailand. I'm not going to lose two weeks bedded up. And then even after that. So I said to the hotel owner, go to the chemist and get me one Tramadol and one 10 mil Valium. She come back with two blister packs, a blister pack of Valium and a blister pack of Tramadol. And I should have known then, but I just went, oh, I went, oh, tick. That was her name. I went, oh, it'll be all right. Right. I took the, both blister packs off her. <clears throat> the next time I'm conscious, she's shaking me. I'm in my bed. She's violently shaking me. I'm sort of start coming around. There's ladyboys, prostitutes, very rough-looking people all in my room. There's broken glass everywhere. There's porn everywhere. There's lines on the side. There's about, about 50 empty blister packs all over the place. There's a cigar in the ashtray. There's a Glock on the side table. Oh, my God. And I'm just like, what the fuck has happened? And this woman, Tick, who I'd got to know really well before I'd done my back in, not really well, but we talked every night because I wasn't out drinking. I was in the hotel, the, the guest house lounge talking to her. And she was going, this, this stops now. She went, oh, you're dead. You're going to die. She chucked all these fucking wasters and prostitutes out she swept up all the mess there was like three televisions in there I mean fuck knows to this day where they come from there's only meant to be one and they're all playing Japanese porn which is a channel in Thailand anyway I, she tidied all that up and it was it was horrible because I'd been pretty much in blackout for to this day I don't know whether it is a matter of days or a couple of weeks you know I've never been out of place piece it back together but slowly over the next few weeks recovering in thailand you know recovering from the binge you know it all started slowly coming back to me and photos on my phone and weird text messages and you know some of the stuff that happened basically i'd had one valium and one tramadol and then thought that was nice i'll have another one you'll be all right and of course after that i should i'll go and have a beer fuck it i'm in thailand on holiday what's all this na luck <laughs> And uh, and I checked my bank. I'd spent I'd spent the equivalent to uh, thirty thousand English at the time, sixty thousand dollars. Wow! Um, on methamphetamine, which I'd never done before, but it had always been in the background. And in Thailand, it's everywhere. And you know, I was uh, on the methamphetamine, and I fired that gun in someone's house. I remember letting that gun go a few times after they tried to rob me. Um, I lost a couple of ounces of meth in my anal canal, which I ripped out with a fork. I actually heard that story on great shit stories in Scotland. 
There you go. The best, my favorite part of that interview is when you're trying to figure out the word tines and you and the Scott (laughs) guy are trying to sort out how the the, the fork becomes the baby's hand to pull the shit out of your ass. That's insane. You know, so you got, (laughs) how did that happen? Explain that to the audience. And I could, I'd already asked, I'd already had to run past reception reception. So she couldn't see me in the mess. I was in sweating and biting my lips off because of the speed. And I couldn't get it with my fingers, this meth that was in there. So I just thought, fuck it, that fork could do. And I tried to fashion it into just something that might be able to push it against the side of my anal wall and hack it down. Do you remember, like, why, how you had shoved the meth up your ass in the first place? Yeah, I do. I was at this house, and I can picture it. It's up, it's up, Patong Valley. Well, it's a valley, and there's obviously big mountains either side of it, and that's where you go. That's where I was going to score the meth, and I was in this house, and they were taking hours and hours to sort it out. I think that's where the gun came from there as well, and because um, that's where I remember shooting it. And uh, they, when they finally got that meth sorted, I, I wanted to look all professional. I had, I had this mad paranoia that they were going to try and rob me. And that's what that involved the gun as well. But when I got the gear, I didn't want to just put it in my pocket and drive through Patong for one of them to ring up the police and say there's an Englishman on a scooter coming down the hill with two ounces of meth on him. So I wanted to do the old cling film and Vaseline and just bank it. We call it in England, but they didn't have any. They didn't have any Vaseline or cling film, but they had sellotape and and fucking <laughs> and, uh, what do you call it? Tiger bomb. <laughs> no, shut the and fuck the up. And the sellotape, as I... Did you say tiger no, bomb? 100% because... Yeah, oh, it gets no. worse. Because as I was wrapping it up in sellotape, it was just making razor-sharp sellotape edges oh, and no. getting bigger. Oh. And the more I tried to cover up the previous razor-sharp sellotape edge, the more I was making more another one, but also bigger. And what was originally probably not much bigger than a, a bottle of vape juice, that's a very modern comparison, it was now much like a baby's arm. And, of course, no. that's when I said, have you got any, any uh, cooking oil or vegetable oil or anything, Vaseline? They were like, no, no. And then I just thought, Tiger Balm. So I smeared it all over this thing, and God, man, did that hurt. <laughs> Absolute <laughs> agony. And also, the amount of grief I'd given, the man threatened them with this gun, when they saw this Englishman standing by the door to their place, watching them all like a hawk. And when I say all, there was about four blokes and a lot of naked women and naked children, a proper time meth house, you know, the worst absolute life at its least efficient. And what, when they were watching this Westerner trying to shove this thing up his bum and as it was slowly getting that weird cold heat of tiger balm into the lesions, <laughs> I said when I, when I tell the story on stage, I say, if you'd have asked me with two ounces of meth, some sellotape and some tiger balm to make the most violently painful um, object to put in your bum, I, I did it. <laughs> I absolutely created it. But yeah, I put it up like that. That's uh. an, it's an insane story. And then I we are unfortunately pressed for time, which I hate because you are a dream, Chris. You are a dopey dream. If only you were in total recovery, so you could be my incredible shining night of sobriety. But fuck it, you're a dopey dream either way. Because what the fuck? There is no bump key in recovery, right? There is no <laughs> one way to do it. Um, but uh, how did you get out of that run? To, to some sort of semblance of normalcy. Well, I, one, once she shook me back to life and said, you know, this stops, 
the, the, the owner of the guest house, she was only the manager. The owner was the wife of the chief of Phuket police. Uh, and she may, although we were very good friends and we still are today, she did sort of imply that it had been an effort for her to protect me from being discovered by, you know, the, the, the police and the policeman's wife. And that anymore, she wasn't going to make that effort anymore. And it was my choice. So once I'd got a bit of strength back and I was devastated, don't get me wrong. I'd gone from four and a half years clean, bank, bank full of money, successful business out in Thailand, not drinking, obviously nothing to a mess. You know, I lost about 10, 15 kilos in that, whatever, however long that was. And I realized it was only by luck that I hadn't been arrested and you don't want to end up in the Bangkok Hilton, you know, this is serious out there. Yeah. And, um, and, and that was not by judgment. That was luck. It was only luck. I don't know what I was doing. I don't know what I was saying to people. You know, I, I, I went and had a massage the next day, and the girl massaging me, she said, oh, it works today, you know, because she, she gave me a happy ending. I was like, what do you mean? I never met you. She was like, no, last week you <laughs> spitting at us. Spitting at us. I was like, what? Oh and this God. has happened in Patong for years. People bumping into me going, no, hello, how are you? You're crazy. Remember you smoke? We smoke on the hill. I was like, get out of the way. I hate you. Right. You're scaring me. Please don't. You're like a ghost. But um, so, yeah, after a couple of days, I've run my sponsor between my legs and, and, and he just said, all right, it happens. You're not dead. You're not in prison. Do you want to do you want to make some effort to stay clean again? And I was like, yeah, yeah, really. And so I did. But I only got about seven months and I don't know. I just I, I felt. You know, you said there's no bump key to recovery, and I do struggle with talking about this side of things because I don't want to encourage people in recovery to use drugs, really. I think I've been kind of lucky. You know, I'm not special and different, but I have had things happen to me that a lot of people don't seem to maintain, so don't, don't, see, don't seem to be able to maintain. But I felt like I was missing out on so much just because so much of our culture is built around substances, and I just couldn't, I couldn't hack it anymore. I couldn't. I couldn't be alienated and lonely like that. And, uh, you know, there's a, there's an argument, as my sponsor said, that I wasn't making the right effort to make connections where I could. I was trying to, I was trying to do it my own way as per usual, but I did, I did start having the odd drink and I, you know, I do only have the odd drink. It was my girlfriend's birthday yesterday, went out, her and her family had loads. They were drunk and dancing. I had a cocktail, just just one. And it wasn't a struggle. I wasn't sitting there afterwards, like biting my teeth, going, "I need another one." Most of me was actually thinking that that cocktail was a bit strong. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> and you know, and and okay, you know, I grew some weed out here. I grew a couple of plants, and uh, I harvested about ten ounces. It's in a bag under my desk. I've had one joint out of it. You know, that was harvested about four months ago. How is it? It's nice. So, it's premium. It's absolutely amazing. I mean, I give it away, and you know, it's a nice treat for people. Do you but, think? Do you think you use so little because you're cautious about the life you've had, like you're trying to be careful, or you're not interested? I, you know what, I think I've got. I think age helps because you know. I know I'm not old, old, but I'm 47, and you know, I've got this new girlfriend. Well, I say new. We've been together nearly two years now, but I want to be close to her. I want to feel the connection. And even yesterday when we, when we were all drinking, there was a part, there was a moment in that evening where I thought, right, we're not together anymore, me and her. There's, you know, not, we're not splitting up, but I meant we're 
it's now a solo mission for her. Whereas up until that point, I gave her a present. We had a, like, a romantic dance on this rooftop bar. But I just noticed that moment where she was just sort of in her drunk head. And, you know, I don't, I don't really like that sort of thing anymore. And when I have, when I've got friends in England who smoke weed all the time and I just think, can you just not for a day so that I can see you for the first time in years? Because it's about the connection you're talking about. Being yeah, able to connect yeah. to somebody and not being alone in your head or with the substance yeah. or whatever. No, I, it, exactly. That. That's a beautiful message. And I love the takeaways. You know, I even like the idea of a bump key. It's such a dope, it's like such a druggy sort of sounding thing. Cause like you take a, <laughs> in, in, in America and New York, I used to take bumps of Coke off the key. So the idea of it being called a bump key to actually pick a lock is fascinating. But the idea that there is no one way to get sober or one way to live. I, I, I subscribe to that. Um, I always tell everybody that I would never have made it without 12 step recovery. It got, it saved my, my life and I would be hypocritical not to mention it, but I do believe there are a million ways, uh, to get your life back. Well, and also Dave, I would like to point out the, the, the treatment center I went to where I did finally get clean. The, the, the bloke that run it was an atheist and he used to have this thing that he called the simple steps and it was like a godless version. And, you know, the stuff I learned at that rehab center that did get me clean are still principles I live by today. You know, all that stuff around acceptance, about resentments, personal inventories, um, admitting when you're wrong, you know, promptly admitting it and all that sort of stuff. Asking for help. You know, these are things that I still live by. So without a doubt, stuff that essentially comes from the 12 steps of AA through NA, whatever, the fellowship, 12-step fellowships, they still inform my life, and they're still a, a, a very big part of why it's not the mess it was. No, I totally, totally understand. And I really, really have enjoyed uh, meeting you and talking to you a bit. It's been a lot of fun for me. So thank you so much for coming on the old Dopey Show. It's been an absolute pleasure, Dave. Thanks for having me on. And Chris, I want to get you on again. I'm sure you have like ridiculous stories that are even worse than these. Don't you? We can go we can go on for hours. <laughs> well, enjoy your time and thank you again. Thank you very much, Dave. Bye. Bye, right on. Oh, I'm not gonna say that. Well, we're on, so maybe you want to say it. Okay? No. That was Chris Dangerfield, everybody. And um I thought honestly, like, it's interesting because Ray usually likes everything, and Ray's saying he didn't like something what? about Chris. What didn't you like about I him? I just didn't I couldn't understand why he was in Thailand or Cambodia? That's what didn't compute that he was in. He lives in Cambodia. I don't Why know. is that the thing? I couldn't follow the story. Really? I you see. It's well, I was, funny. I was washing dishes while I was listening. You were washing your clothes in the sink. No, I was washing my dishes in the sink. Danny, you, want, you have to know this one thing about Ray before we move on. And I should have said this before, but I say it every time he's on the show. Ray doesn't like doing the laundry like a normal person. I don't like doing the laundry either. So do you know what Ray does instead? You wear your clothes a lot. He that wears his clothes in the shower. And that's how he washes his clothes. The outfit you're wearing right now was cleaned in the shower on your body? Actually, I washed the door. He's a fucking liar. I, I he wa- never does. He took I a never video of himself <laughs> in the fucking shower. I never do my, my, Oh, you don't do no, it like that. I actually, I washed this shirt yesterday because I was jerking off and some of the cum got on the shirt. And I was wow. like, I've got to wash that. Ray's letting it all hang out today. <laughs> First good. the relapse how? and now hating Chris Dangerfield <laughs> and now he's coming on his shirt. How Holy high did it hit up there? Pretty high, which is like, as you get older, it doesn't go as far anymore, but it does sometimes. <laughs> Mine doesn't go anywhere anymore. <laughs> I know. And I see some of the videos online, and I'm like, you got to be kidding me. It's um, fucking really impressive. Now, Ray, what do you have to... I mean, I listen, I usually don't have anything good to say, or especially privately, about what's on the show. 
But I thought Chris Dangerfield was like a fucking diamond in the rough. And you're sitting here doing your dishes, not paying attention. Sort of, yeah. All right, Dopey Nation. It was late at night, too. Let's hear your opinion of Chris Dangerfield. I think he was, as Chris used to say, fire, total fire episode, total, total fire interview. We got a lot of stuff going on. I, I, I could tell I have stories to tell, but I think I will tell the story, the Bob Dylan story. Bob Dylan. Okay. The, the fight. How many, episodes, how many episodes do you guys do in a sitting? Today we're going to do two. But Ray isn't normally on the episode like this. This is a special occasion for you, Danny. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, so my lovely, 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 beautiful partner, Linda, bought me tickets to go see Bob Dylan. Actually, I think I bought her tickets to go see Bob Dylan. But she's in charge of buying the tickets because I can't handle it. One time I bought tickets for us to go see Billy Joel, and I bought them like the day the tickets went on sale, and I spent like 500 bucks, and we got the worst seats like before they went on sale because I don't know how to buy tickets. Like I'm not good at that kind of stuff. Terrible at it. So Linda's very good at it, and whenever we go to a concert, she brags about how many more concerts she's seen than me. It's kind of part of her shtick. So we went into town on a Friday night from Long Island to see Bob Dylan at the Beacon. And we go out to dinner, and then we get to the Beacon, and she takes out the phone and finds the tickets, and they tell us that we don't have tickets for that night, that our tickets are for Saturday. Oh, I didn't know you came into town. So we got there, and she's, like, devastated. And I'm like, and I was like, it's okay, baby. We all make mistakes. And uh, and I and I like don't Wait, I, I literally you told I was like how was the show and you're like oh it's tomorrow night I didn't know that you came in I did that at that at an airport one time I went to the airport it's like that on the it's wrong like day. that so so we we go home and then the next day and all this stuff happened like the washing machine broke I bought a new washing machine these El Salvadorians came to install the new washing machine like they have to take a door off the hinges I have the baby and I'm talking Spanish to the El Salvadorians. Like, and then they leave, and I run a load of laundry, and it floods the whole laundry room. And I'm like, fuck. And we call the Lowe's people. Hold on, hold on a second. Right after they installed it? Right after they installed it. Flooded the whole fucking... Right after they didn't install it. They installed it. And then I'm freaking out, and Linda's so mad. And we call up Lowe's, and the El Salvadorians come back. And they're, like, trying to figure out what's wrong. And, and it was, like, it was two El Salvadorians and a Dominican. And I, I'm pretty Dominican in my... Self. Like, I can speak a lot of Dominican Spanish. I can do a lot of, like, Dominican colloquialisms. Can you and tell stuff. me something right now? No. Tell no. me something nice, like Papi Chulo style. No, that's, I'm not going to embarrass you or myself. That's Puerto Mostly, Rican, right? No, Papi Chulo is Dominican and Puerto Rican. Um, but I'm saying all sorts of stuff. Like, there's a guy at work who, like, has a pool in the, in the province of Bernal, and he says, Tengo la piscina, pero no tengo uh, agua en la piscina. Like, he can't, he can't get the water in his pool. And I told that joke to them. They're, like, laughing. Nora was there. She's like, Daddy, you speak Spanish. It was, it was like, good, the best moment of my life. But they're trying to hook up the washing machine, and they can't fucking figure out what's wrong with it. And then we're t- I'm trying to, like, cobble some Spanish together uh, to get it done. And I was like, let's just go to the the hardware store and I'll get you what you need. He's like, he's like, I need, he's like, necesito PVC and blah, blah, blah. I was like, all right, let's go. And the Dylan concert was that night. So we go to the hardware store. <laughs> like I get the pipes and I'm trying to like talk Spanish to, I'm trying to like make jokes in Spanish to them and, and then talk with the, like the guidos who work at the hardware store at the same time. And they're like giving me the eye, like why am I bringing these El Salvadorians to our white store? It was very like racy. Oh, interesting. And, um, Anyway, 
we go back to the house and, and the guy's like, I'm going to need to cut this pipe off the wall. So I said, all right, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm talking Spanish. And I'm like, cause like cut is a big word at Katz's cause you're cutting pastrami. So I could say cut. And, um, he cuts the pipe off the wall and then he tries to attach another pipe and then it doesn't work at all. It just all backs up again. And, um, and then the time is ticking, time is ticking, time is ticking, and we have to go to Dylan. And I was like, I was like, what are you gonna do? Whatever. And Linda like gets so mad. She's like, how could you think these guys could have fixed the pipes? And you let them. She she described one of them coming into the house holding a saw and giggling, like as though he's <laughs> gonna start chopping the pipe. And he looked so stoned. She said, how could you not notice? And I was like, I did notice, but the other guy seemed like he was a capable plumber. Anyway. Linda and I wind up going to see Dylan, and, um, and uh, it was a nice show, but there were five people in front of us who uh, wouldn't shut the fuck up. And the first couple numbers are like up-tempo rockers. He plays like Highway 61. He played something else. And then he, st- then he, plays, he plays It Ain't Me, Babe, but he's not really singing it. And Linda was like making jokes that she wanted him to play It Ain't Me, Babe. Like, you know, I don't know, it was funny. And he plays it, and they won't shut up in front of us. So she's like, shh. And then they st- he starts playing When I Paint My Masterpiece. And it's Dylan. In fr- and I love Bob Dylan. And it's Bob Dylan in front of me. Quietly singing. At the piano with, with this beautiful band and an upright bass. And these people in front of me are fucking talking. And Linda's like, shh, like that. But you can't just throw out a shh. In, a, in a, a, a theater, you know, no one's going to get the shh, especially somebody who's so disrespectful as to be talking during when I paint my masterpiece. So, and I'm getting agitated, you know, and I can avoid stuff like that, but when Linda wants it shushed, I thought I could be like the big man and shush them. So I, and it's two old ladies in front of me. <laughs> How old are these old ladies? Well, the one I tapped was pretty old. She, she had to have been... Th- so you knew you could start some yeah, shit. I was like, yeah, whatever. Like, were they like 80 or no. were they like 60? No, it was like... I didn't realize it was five of them together. I just thought the two ladies were together. And one of them was probably in her late 40s. And the older one was probably in her late 50s. I would guess. Late, you got to watch out for those late 50s ladies. They'll fuck you up. <laughs> well, so I reach over, I lean over and I tap her. And I said... Could you please stop talking? That's what I said. And then I, I leaned back, and I was like, I wish I hadn't done that. But I didn't get any reprisal. And the show goes on, and I'm having, it's like, pretty good. He plays Girl from the North Country with a, the upright bass. He's bowing the bass. He played fucking, um, what else did he play? He played, uh, I don't remember now. But I, I had a whole list of songs. I looked up the set list. It was, Do you remember it was a else? great set list. I can't remember. And then he closes... Then he played, oh, he played that uh, Lenny Bruce song, which was beautiful. He really sang it, you know, which was great. And, like, you just want to see Dylan have a good time. I mean, I just want to see Dylan have a good time because I love him. And um, the show ends. And, you know, there's But to think also, like, this is something that all of this is going to be forgotten. Everything in a thousand years, Dylan will be remembered. You always say that. Yeah. But so what you're about to see, you know, what you're saying happened. These women were t- talking like a thousand years ago, this guy Dylan played before masses of people and some old ladies talk because they just didn't get it. The show ends. There's like, you know, and it's going to be the encore. And he's gone off stage for a long time. 
And I'm thinking he's like in the bathroom he's doing heroin. I'm thinking. I'm thinking he's in the bathroom. I'm not thinking he's doing heroin. I'm thinking like he has to take a piss. He's he's old. He's 77, and he's on stage for an hour and a half. He's got to. He's got to. You know. I, I think he had to get himself together. And everyone's clapping. They're going, Bobby, Bobby. <laughs> They're doing all this stuff. And then like there's another lull. And I'm not the kind of person that could just sit there and clap for 20 minutes. So I just scream, "Let's go!" You know, like. And the people in the front row, the front, the row in front of us, turn around and they start screaming at me. As soon as I say "Let's go," they went, "Shut the fuck up!" They, the old ladies. Yeah, the old ladies. They start the, screaming the at me. Forty-year-old old ladies. Honestly, they start screaming at me. Yeah, that's, that's like younger than you, Dave. They reminded me of like the videos from the early '60s where clans people were yelling at black kids not to go to school. Like insane rage at me. And I thought they were like making a joke. So I start smiling and laughing because I think it's like a funny thing. And they start screaming. They said, you got a lot of fucking nerve. You don't touch somebody. And I'm smiling. And she goes, what the fuck is wrong with you? And I'm like, what? And, uh, and then there's a dude with them. And the dude is like bald head with the long fucking beard, like a fucking MMA fighter kind of thing. And he's like, you're a fucking asshole. You're a fucking asshole. And I'm like, and I'm where like, was this show? At Beacon Theater. We're, we're like the bleachers of the Beacon Theater. I'm like, what? I'm like, what, what happened? What did I do? And he's like, you're a fucking asshole. You don't touch a woman. I, so I tapped her to tell her to stop talking during when I paint my masterpiece. And like the person behind him is like, chill, man. And, she, and he starts screaming at the dude behind him. He goes, you don't touch an old lady. And I'm like getting scared. Like this dude will fucking destroy me. At the Beacon Theater with Linda... You know what I mean? I'm like that could be good for the show. It could have been. This is good for the show anyway. Anyway, and I and Linda's like Linda goes, "Be quiet." She goes, "Don't smile. Stop laughing." She goes, "Sit back." Stop laughing. <laughs> <laughs> she says, "Sit back and um and let it go." Um and, and if they say anything just say I'm not going to fight with you. And I said, "Okay." And I and I and I said, "We should go." Is what I said. And she's like, "We're not leaving." And um and I'm like looking for my baseball hat. And, uh, and then he plays just like Tom Thumbs Blues, but I don't like the version he plays, and he plays something else. And I have to tell you this. In my head, I thought we were going to get Dylan on Dopey. I just thought somehow it was going to happen. <laughs> you know, I, that's what I was thinking the whole time. Think big. And, that's uh, amazing. And the that's, sh- that's big plans right there. And the show ends. The show ends, and the five of them, I'm ready for it to be like, fucking, it's on, confrontation. I'm going to have to talk, you know, something. They run out. During the applause, they run out, the five of them, at once. And everybody around us starts shaking my hand and congratulating me for shushing the old lady because she disturbed all of them. See that? You were doing the right thing. Yeah. Next right thing, baby. Um, but uh, that's the Dylan story. Isn't that a crazy story? A story. It is a great story. Um, so I, I'm, well, I'm, I'm just realizing while we're sitting here, I mean, this is like, it would be so easy to make a show out of your show. What do you mean? And it's ridiculous that we're not shooting every single show. It's well, crazy. that's on that's on you. And, and and most shows are not done in the in the pleasure of my dad's house on a nice afternoon. Where do you do the other ones? I often will do it late at night on Long Island, in like the, in the attic. In the attic. I'm, I'm going to come out there and spend the night with you well, in the attic, please. Not in your bed. No, you can sleep on Nora's bottom bunk. It's oh, so cute. Um. Anyway. Thanks, Linda. That's the, that's the Dylan story, and I think it's worth telling. Now, there's a lot of big, dopey news coming up. The biggest news, and I probably should have led the whole show with this, is that... We need a timpani roll. 
Mountainside, the rehab where I met Chris, and also the rehab uh, that put on DopeyCon, has offered a scholarship to one lucky Dopey listener uh, who's in addiction and who's having a hard time uh, to go there for a 28-day period. So if you're feeling squirrely and uh, you're struggling with addiction, uh, write me a page on why you think you should go, or if you're not a good writer, send in a short, short, short voice memo, and we will pick uh, one lucky, afflicted, dopey member to get a free ride to Mountainside. And, um, and just for everybody that doesn't get this scholarship... Um, just know that I think there will be more scholarships coming up. So I think that's really, really, really exciting. And right now, we are going to play an amazing dopey voicemail from this woman, Hannah, in New Zealand. You ready? Hello, Dopey Nation, and kia ora, my friend Dave. This is Hannah here, all the way from Wellington, New Zealand. Um, I'm recording you this voice memo um, on my 60 days, so uh, it would make me very, very happy, uh, myself and my friends in the land down under here, um, if you could play my goddamn voice memo. So... Um, I know I've kind of talked to you about this story, but, um, this I think is like seriously, seriously dopey. Um, my best friend and I, um, Emma, we had (laughs) this relapse from hell, um, right before I got this length of clean time up. So I just thought I'd tell you all about it. Um, I'd been in rehab for six months in Melbourne and I'd moved to the transitional housing. And uh, one day I was going into the head office to do like a UDS, like a drug screen. And one of the support workers, they told me how proud they were of me and how much progress I'd made. So naturally myself and another woman in the program went out for one celebratory drink. And as the old tale goes, one was too many and a thousand never enough. And we soon found ourselves super drunk, walking up and down the aisles of the slot machines asking people for cocaine. And uh, when we couldn't find any coke, we settled on its cheaper best friend, meth, and uh, we went back to a stranger's house um, to smoke some meth. And um, for me, like, you know, meth just, it's instant psychosis for me now and it was not at all fun. And I just sat on the bed staring out the window as my friend made out with this strange man. Um, We had to be back at the transition house by midnight. We were both breathalyzed and uh, obviously um, (laughs) we both blew over. Um... We were optioned out. I asked my best friend if I could crash at hers for the weekend in her family home. Um, And I then decided to corrupt her a very small amount of clean time. And instead of going to a meeting we said we'd go to, we sculled two bottles of wine in a park. (laughs) I then made an ad on a dating website, just said... Young girls looking for drugs. And within 15 minutes, we were in an Uber on our way to smoke meth and do some coke 
with the strange man in his hotel for two hours. Um, he then dropped us home, but we snuck back out that night to sit in his truck and use. I'd uh, cooked myself into pure psychosis by this point, and I wouldn't allow anyone else to talk for hours. I also made him cover every window with some foil he had in the car, and we sat um, parked and I just I thought the police were out the front I kept saying shh what was that as like I'm sure we've all done um, the next morning we'd been invited to a Narcotics Anonymous youth football get together and I took my friend's dad's benzos and just cooked it in front of all of these people in recovery who were all serene and spiritual and having fun um, so that night I decided to tell a man who was interested in me that it was my birthday so he booked a room at the casino my friend and I snuck out to meet him got wasted invited some prostitutes up to his room to buy coke um we then smashed through a ridiculous amount in about 45 minutes, ordered a bunch of perfumes to his room took $200 and went home to go and buy some meth uh, then I got my boyfriend at the time who had relapsed on heroin to pick me up. Uh, we both wouldn't admit that we were high, but it was pretty clear when, uh, we basically couldn't have sex. Um, the next morning I passed out in my cereal bowl at the breakfast table and woke up screaming, who killed Katy Perry? And this was enough to get me kicked out of my friend's home. Uh, and it really really doesn't stop there I went to meet up with the guy from the night before he bought me some coke and I decided to go and get my hair cut at the hair salon you know I decided I needed some meth so I text the guy from the first night uh, and he came and dropped off a pipe to me at the hairdressers and I continued to smoke in the bathroom um I then began walking along the streets of St Kilda, saw some boys partying on a balcony and asked to come up. I wouldn't share my meth with uh, one of these guys and he raged so badly he jumped off the balcony, snapped his leg and the ambulance came while I just sat in the corner smoking bongs with his friend. Um, the next morning I showed up to the rehab headquarters to find out if I was going to be allowed back in. Funnily enough, I was kicked out hard. I got a hotel room and I felt sorry for myself, so I decided to get some heroin. Dad was on his way over to pick me up and bring me back to New Zealand. However, I got so dope sick that I couldn't fly for three days and my dad was stuck in a hotel room with his daughter who was detoxing, uncontrollably vomiting and completely unable to fly. Um, I've come back to my family home and I've not touched drugs or alcohol since. This rehab terrified me and was the definition of unmanageable. Um, I hope you enjoyed this voicemail and it wasn't too long. Um, love the whole don't die sort of stuff you're talking about, Dave. You know, I've got so many people, as I'm sure we all do, out there using dangerously and you know I when they've called me um and asked me for stuff you know I'm just like 
you you got you can't use alone. You know, you got to go to a safe injection spot. I just don't. I don't want to lose another friend, and I'm sure you don't either. So stay strong, Dopey Nation, and toodles for Chris. That was a pretty amazing uh, Dopey story. Amazing voicemail. And I want to make before you say anything. I just want to make an apology to Richard Malcolm. Your voicemail is in the works. Dickie Vegas, we got it. We got it coming up, man. I want to just make a public apology. Anybody that sent in a voicemail, it's not easy to to sift through these things. I loved Hannah's voicemail. It was it was right on the money. Um, not that yours isn't, Richard, or anybody else's isn't. So you just need to know that. Um, Hannah, Hannah just fucking took a sleeping pill, and her sponsor made her uh, reset her day count, which was annoying to her. I, I, yeah, I, I can side with her. Well, Ray just had to reset his day count because he drank vodka. You, did you, but you, Ray, nope. you gave up your day count a long time ago, though. I've never known my day count or my year count. Or I you don't no think idea. it's helpful to count days? I guess it's helpful to a lot of people because people love to say it. Ah. You know, I, I don't know my actual sober day. Okay. But I've made one up because I like to... I, went to, I actually went to Heroin Anonymous uh, last week, and I was the oldest person there. Yeah. And... Um, and I wanted to like I was such a dick. I, I I'm I'm like old and weird. I'm like not wearing socks and it's cold. And Man, how old were the other people? They're like in their early twenties, all of them. And but I'm the oldest person there. And they're they're like, you know, they're basically giving away coins for, for clean time. Yeah. And I never picked up any coins in Heroin Anonymous, so I was like, fuck it, I'm gonna pick up my multiple year coin. Mm-hmm. You know, and I don't know if you can pick up it's been seven or eight years since I've done heroin but I'm four years clean and they didn't have a seven or eight one. So I just took the four years, but I was just trying to like, I think I was trying to impress them in my own way, but why shouldn't I take a fucking key tag? Right. I don't I've know. taken a coin. What, what did you, what's the last coin you took? A 90 day. <laughs> did you take the, the, the relapse on and ecstasy spoke, in the Ireland? Coin? I spoke at a 90 day, everybody who had 90 days and we got a coin. Well, that's nice. Now, this is a very important part of the show. It's everybody's favorite part of the show where we get my dad to come in and predict when we're going to get 3 million downloads. My dad has flirted with leaving the apartment for about three hours, and here he is coming in in his Argyle sweater, looking very dapper. Alan, here, get on his mic. I don't think you should sit down. I don't think you should. Yeah, please sit down. I'm just kidding. First time that they're letting me sit. You down. sat last episode. Well, that was because there was nobody else here. That's but true. Ray just stood up, which was very sweet of him. Very so nice. Ray, Danny, you need to know we are at two million nine hundred and some odd thousand downloads. It's amazing. Building up towards the three million. Three million. Right. So you want my prediction? We. That's what everybody wants. Well, based upon all my research of uh, days and uh, how many downloads per day, my prediction is yes, December twenty third, twenty fourth, almost Christmas Eve. That's a very vague prediction. I need 20, a day. Give me a day. I I will say December twenty fourth. Ray, what's your prediction? December twenty third. Oh, Ray, Danny. <laughs> I'm going with whatever Alan says. I thought his prediction was very accurate at two days. I'm going to say December 27th, 4 o'clock. Dopey Nation, why don't you write in to dopeypodcast at gmail.com, make your prediction close. This is the first contest. I'm going to actually honor the winner. First contest. (laughs) You're sure you're going to do this? I have 98 pairs of new dopey socks. 
Not 97, did Nin- you? 97, I have one now. No, no, I gave one to you and Ray, and my dad, of course, is going to come looking for a pair. No, I'm not. You don't think so? I, I once gave my dad a pair of Phil Jackson socks for Christmas, and I took them back before New Year's. Oh. Um, yeah, I know. I got problems. Um, anyway, the winner of whoever can predict the 3 million download to the minute... That's difficult. To the minute? The closest one gets a free pair of Dopey Socks, a $13.50 value. Dopey Nation, you should hold them to this. You should. You should try. And maybe I'll throw in a free Dopey concert because I got a box of those. Anyway, thank you, Dad. Oh, more importantly, it occurs to me that my dad told me that we're not getting enough reviews. Oh, that's true. It's terrible. People out there are not responding. I don't know what's going on. We need reviews. So send in a review, this although... This the I, iTunes things, right? Yes, Dad, the iTunes. My dad doesn't know the difference between the reviews and the, uh, the emails, which is very sweet and to somebody else besides me. To me, it's incredibly frustrating. I'm going to have you read the newest review, Dad. You ready? I don't have my glasses. Oh, Jesus. Use Ray's. No, I have Okay. Oh, yeah. I don't think you're going to be able to handle it. All right, here, read this one, Dad. Is it a, is it a one-star review? It might be. Here, read this one. This, this is from Dumb? No, uh, the one below it. Oh, that's the one star. Yeah, that was a horrible one. I All right. I no, I'm not reading this <laughs> one again. Just come on, that's I am not that's the you asked me this last time and uh, I refused to read it last time. This is the guy who was talking about white privilege calling me some I don't this is not one good. star by a privileged white man. For Privileged White Men by New York City Sarah. I sometimes enjoy this podcast, but I'm often struck by the fact that it's mainly wealthy white men who are misogynistic at best. I can't recall ever hearing a story told by a racial minority, and I remember listening to just two by women. Can I, can I interrupt you? Yeah. I don't know if that's bad etiquette on your show. We're Jews. It doesn't count. It doesn't count. Um, we're not even white. We're white enough. Um, you're white enough. Um, especially you, Danny. You're very white. Um... Come on, man. Give me a break. Um, I can't recall ever hearing a story told by a racial minority, and I remembered listening to just two by women. The men sharing have wealthy parents. One with a Manhattan apartment that we hear about in every single episode to fall back on. For teachers, firemen, oh, give me a break. Give me, just don't the make excuses. Of the earth, they undergo numerous stints in rehab that would bankrupt most average American families. The problem is that there's no self-awareness, maturity, or acknowledgement of the privilege that they are able to employ. Most of the guests would be in jail by by now if they were black, which is true. Some forever due to grotesque mandatory minimums, and yet Dopey is a joke about what white guys behaving badly can get away with. It might be helpful to be slightly less narcissistic and to recognize that recovery stories are more than those of white men with endless means. Well, it turns out that she's what, right. What she was saying she's is right. absolutely correct, yes. except for the father. You're being the well, wealthy. very wealthy. Here, read this one. This one, five star. It'll make you. You won't even understand it. I'll read it. Yeah, read he it. says, "Alt recovery movement, five stars by living under bogey. It going to do two things. One, it going to kill people. Two, it going to help people hit bottom and start working the steps." 
And that's his review of the alt-recovery movement. Yes, yeah. So what's happening with your alt-recovery Well, I, I think it's actually Basically. your alt-recovery oh, movement. Yeah, you my mean- dad paid for the trademark. Um, which is very sweet. He's the le- my dad is the crack legal team behind the Dopey Podcast. I, I cracked up is, is what is true. You know, I think this show has gone on long enough. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, leave I- a five star review if you're listening to the show and you love the show. Just go on iTunes and hit five stars. Write a funny review or don't. I have a feeling that the more five star reviews we get. We grow in the thing that my dad loves to look yeah, at. Yeah, usually it was like we used to 10, be in the it was st- ten out of ten. iTunes has taken us out of the fucking that's world. Right. So like, let's get back in the sphere of iTunes. Leave a five star review. Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. Everybody, say goodbye. Ray, thank you so much. Bye. Uh, Bye. Alan, thank you, and of course, Danny. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. And uh, we'll see you guys later.